0: Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 20, The Voyage of the Mayflower. This podcast is currently undergoing a listener survey. If you could complete that survey, it would be a huge help to both me and the show. You can find it at the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com. Also, special thanks to our newest pioneer, Listener P. Thank you. I couldn't do the show without you. In September, 1620, the Mayflower set sail from Southampton, a port city on the south coast of England, heading out to the New World. It was a cramped journey with over a 100 people on board, of which the Pilgrims were a minority. There is no surviving plan of the ship, and there are no photos, so we can only make educated guesses about what it was like. Balin, in his book the Barbarous Years, supposes that it was 113 feet in length, 23 feet wide, with 11 foot depth of hold. Andrews, in his The Colonial Period of America, assumes that the Mayflower was similar to other merchant ships of the era, and describes it as a, quote, staunch, chunky, slow sailing vessel, square-rigged, double-decked, broad beam with high upper structure at the stern, the passengers occupying cabins or quarters between decks, or, in the case of the women and children, in rough cabins forward below the poop, End quote. They also learnt from the mistakes of Jamestown. They were going to be prepared for this. Furniture, pots, pans, livestock, and two dogs would all be taken, the men gathered by the company for the expedition did not get on well with the pilgrims, finding their excessive piety pretty ridiculous. The pilgrims weren't too fond of these strangers either. Bradford writes some pretty scathing indictments. He was not very fond of the Billingtons, whom he describes as one of the profanest families. One of the children, Francis Billington, aged eight, almost blew up the Mayflower when he shot a gun at a barrel of gunpowder. One Stephen Hopkins, who had been to America before and was of great help to the expedition, was continuously in trouble with the authorities, and two of his servants got on so poorly that they ended up fighting a duel on the ship, but they were both tied up before they could actually kill each other. It's not what you think of when you think of the Pilgrims and the Mayflower, is it? It was not all trouble, though. There was, of course, Bradford, aged 30, and Brewster, aged 53, who we've already met. There was Brewster's assistant, Edward Winslow, aged 25, a very bright and competent young man. The final of the most important men who we need to introduce was John Carver, a deacon related to John Robinson by marriage, who was instrumental in the founding of the colony, and who had been elected the first governor of the colony. It was a stressful journey, and one that lasted two months, but it was quite healthy. The Mayflower was something known as a sweet ship. This meant that it had been used in the wine trade, rather than something like transporting livestock, so the hold was not befouled by the diseases which they would have left behind over the course of the journey, only five people died. So, that was all we have to say for the journey itself, and they reached land on November the 11th, 1620. It was the northernmost tip of Cape Cod, the size of the modern province town in Massachusetts. I'll put a map on the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, but if you were driving or something and currently unable to look at a map, Cape Cod just juts straight out of the eastern coast of Massachusetts, before turning north to create a U-shaped bay, and it was the tip of this extremity that was first sighted by the pilgrims. It was unsuitable for founding a settlement, but they were able to take on fresh water. This is just basic common sense. Any civilization player will tell you that you don't just found your capital on your starting space without checking out the surrounding area. It's as basic a mistake as having Gandhi as an ally. So, what was it like following their arrival? Bradford describes the situation quote, And for the season it was winter, and they that know the winters of that country know them to be sharp and violent and subject to cruel and fierce storms, dangerous to travel to known places, much more to search an unknown coast. Besides, what could they see but a hideous and desolate wilderness, full of wild beasts and wild men, and what multitudes there might be of them they knew not? Neither could they, as it were, go up to the top of Pisgah to view from this wilderness a more goodly country, to feed their hopes, for which waysoever soever they turned their eyes, save upwards to the heavens, they could have little solace or content to respect of any outward objects. For summer being done, all things stand upon them with a weather-beaten face, and the whole country, full of woods and thickets, represented a wild and savage hue. If they looked behind them, there was the mighty ocean which they had passed, and was now as a main bar and gulf to separate them from all the civil parts of the world. End quote. This was not the original plan, it must be remembered. They had intended to sail for Virginia, but for unknown reasons they changed route mid-voyage, and wound up here. Infighting quickly broke out, with the crew ordering the pilgrims, to go find a suitable spot to build a settlement, or else they would leave them stranded. While the indentured servants, who were not legally bound to anything since they were not in Virginia, threatened to leave as soon as they landed. The pilgrim leaders drew up a document, now known as the Mayflower Compact. It wasn't a constitution or anything, but a simple promise to obey the laws of the colony. Forty one men signed it, a mixture of pilgrims and servants. It was not a guarantee of harmony, and it did not bring permanent peace to the colony, but for the moment it was enough. It is not a long document, so if you'll allow me to go through it quote, In the name of God, Amen, we whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign, King James, by the grace of God, of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, king, defender of the faith, and co. Having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith, and honour of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one of another covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic, for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid, and by virtue hereof enact, constitute and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices, from time to time, as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, Unto which we promise all due submission and obedience, in witness whereof we have hereunder subscribed our names at Cape Cod, the eleventh of November, in the year of the reign of our sovereign lord King James of England, France, and Ireland, the eighteenth, and of Scotland, the fifty fourth. Anno Domini, sixteen hundred and twenty. Rather than commenting upon this myself, I'll let the sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams, have his word. Quote, This is perhaps the only instance in human history of that positive, original, social compact, which speculative philosophers have imagined as the only legitimate source of government. Here was a unanimous and personal assent by all the individuals of the community to the association By which they became a nation. The settlers of all the former European colonies had contented themselves with the powers conferred upon them by their respective charters, without looking beyond the seal of the royal parchment, for the measure of their rights and the rule of their duties. The founders of Plymouth had been impelled by the peculiarities of the situation to examine the subject with deeper and more comprehensive research. Quote. This may seem like hyperbole from Adams, and it does look like that in a modern context. There is nothing particularly unique to modern is, but it has to be remembered that this was written in the context of autocratic Stuart England. While the Mayflower Compact doesn't immediately change the world it did keep the little company together when it looked like everything was going to fall apart, and it is symbolic, as it was, and what Adam is referring to, is that it is the first expression of sovereignty deriving from the consent of the governed. I don't want to make too much of this, and I don't think I will, given my distance from the subject matter. It's the sort of thing where if I were an American, I'd probably feel strongly sentimental about this, but I'm not American, and I don't. It was a document which kept the men from fighting with each other. They were prepared to leave each other for dead. It must be remembered. So, this wasn't exact model of social cooperation Adams is making it out to be. It also isn't the only democratic ideal being expressed at the time. The House of Burgesses had just been set up in Virginia. But that said, you can't really ignore the first true example of sovereignty deriving from the consent of the governed. That's pretty fundamental to the whole idea of America. But that line of thought is getting us into abstract revolutionary theory, and there's plenty of time for that later. While better preparations had been made than when founding Jamestown, Things began to go wrong almost immediately. It began as soon as they tried going ashore. The waters around Cape Cod are quite shallow, and to get to land they had to wade through almost half a mile of freezing cold water. People started to get sick. Colds, coughs, that sort of thing. They also made communication with the natives. Okay, footnote. I've tried to be politically correct... Throughout the show so far, by referring to the peoples already living in the United States as Native Americans. But I have since been made aware that it is okay to use the term American Indian, or Indian for short. Basically, there is no real consensus on what the best words are. Native American is the term the United States federal government introduced in the late 20th century and caught on as the PC word outsiders use, but it isn't how they describe themselves. Indian isn't a particularly useful word either, it has a lot of negative connotations, but it's about as good as we've got. American Indians often refer to themselves as such. A 1995 survey by the Census Bureau saw that 49% preferred the term Indian, while only 37% preferred Native American. Plus, Indian is a standard word in academic books on the matter, so I'll probably end up using both words, but I just want to explain why I haven't used the word in the first 19 episodes, now all of a sudden it's popping up. But enough of that digression. The pilgrims, fighting off their colds and coughs, manage to make friendly contact with the Indians, these were not as hostile as the Powhatans had been in Virginia, partly down to the fact their numbers were extremely low following a bout of plague, which had been ravaging the region over the last five years. They were allowed to dig up some of the supplies the Indians had buried, but there was an issue with this. It wasn't a case of just digging up some topsoil. The ground was frozen a foot deep, and when they got it out, they had to take it back to the ships, which involved wading back through the half-mile of freezing water. Very soon, the coughs and colds got worse. They started to get scurvy, and then in December, the deaths began. Six in the first month, then eight in January. In February, the illnesses started spreading and 17 died, 13 more in March. Including Governor Carver, and those are just the named deaths. There were others. Bradford writes that over the course of three months, half the settlers died. They went from a hundred to around fifty. The only slightly redeeming feature was that while things were bad, they were not as bad as Jamestown had been but Life carried on for the people who didn't die. They continued looking for a settlement, and in the middle of a snowstorm on December 11th, Bradford led an expedition stumbling into Plymouth Harbour, a small bay on the western side of Cape Cod Bay, opposite the landing site at Provincetown. There is a map of all this on the website. The Mayflower sailed into the bay on December 16th, and it was decided that this would be their new home. According to legend, the first step of the ships onto land was onto a boulder, which was named Plymouth Rock. But this is almost certainly nonsense. References to the rock don't appear until the 18th century, when it was discovered, except it was too far up the beach, so it was moved to the water's edge to make the site more pleasing for visitors it's nice to know that tourist traps are an age-old tradition. So Plymouth was picked as the site for the colony, and construction of the first common house was begun on December 25th, 1620. Not that the pilgrims attached any significance to the day. To do so would be very popish. At least, so goes one version of events. As I mentioned last time out, the specifics of all of this are very much a matter of debate, and so don't be too surprised if you see slightly different dates when reading about the founding of the Plymouth Colony. The dates are seldom more than a week different, though, so we can be confident of the broad strokes of what happened. After several delays, the Mayflower set off from England in early to mid-September, and, after suffering in several storms while crossing the Atlantic, in what was not the best ship. It was forced to stop off at Cape Cod in early to mid-November. A month or so was spent exploring the region and making contact with the natives, and Plymouth Harbour was discovered in mid-December, and it was decided to make this their home. They travelled, and construction of the first common house started in late December, 1620. To borrow a line from the Penguin history of the USA, quote, Jamestown had acquired a sister, end quote. That's where we'll leave things for this week. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can find more stuff, such as the aforementioned maps, online at thehistoryofpodcast.com, where you can also sign up for membership. Be sure to check out the show's Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, or Twitter, at historyjamie, and you can send me an email if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. The History of Podcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.